good evening everyone thank you for joining us today special thanks to the founders from southeast asia who are staying up late for this a very very warm welcome to the first edition of the brick by brick series where we talk to the brightest minds from across the world on best practices in building insurgent brands we're super excited about our first ever talk series that we're sharing with the broader consumer ecosystem the title should be intuitive for the dsc founders however i think for the larger audience i should clarify the reason why we chose brick by brick as the title for our talk series this goes back to the origins of dsc we were founded in 2012 and pioneered early stage consumer investing because we felt consumer brands required a different philosophy and business building approach when compared to tech businesses in a nutshell our belief is that enduring brands are built brick by brick with a strong focus on fundamentals and hence the name this is a talk series that's tailor made for consumer founders the topic for the first edition is lessons learned from over 15 years of growth stage investing in consumer brands we have with us wayne wu general partner at vmg partners joining in from sf vmg partners is a leading consumer brand focused private equity fund founded in 2005 they manage assets over 2 billion us dollars the firm invested in a number of iconic brands including justins nut butter kind nutrition West Nutrition, Drunk Elephant, Lily Sweets and many many more. The firm also has an amazing track record of exits and Wayne has been with the firm since the very beginning and has seen it all. Wayne, thrilled to have you with us in the first edition and thank you so much for doing this early morning. Thanks for having me. That's very kind. I hope I live up to everything you just said. No no you absolutely would <laughs> and audience throughout the conversation if you have any questions please post them in the Q&A window i've allocated 15 minutes for Q&A towards the end of the conversation so welcome again wayne and for the benefit of the founders would be good if you could give a quick introduction on vmg and how the firm came to be sure i technically have not been there since the beginning i was really close i was the second okay. I was the second team member to join after the founding. So I joined January 2008. Our final close of our first fund at BMG was in summer of 2007. All right. You know, and so our our we haven't really changed much since the beginning. You know, our our focus has been to to help build iconic brands and great business models. So our first fund was a 325 million dollar fund back in uh you know that 2007-2008 range. We invest in branded branded food and beverage, personal care, beauty, the wellness supplement space and fitness. Where we've evolved over time is now we have we're investing on in two different funds. We have our BMG Catalyst fund which is where we just raised our second fund which is a 400 million dollar vehicle to invest in the tech stack that powers consumer brands so think about the tech infrastructure related mm-hmm. to consumer retail and then our our core growth fund is an 850 million dollar vehicle where we're investing out of our fifth fund now still focused in the same areas in you know in the branded CPG categories I've mentioned as well as some multi unit within those within those respective categories and mm-hmm. we're evaluating in early days potential supply and contract manufacturing in those core categories so if you think about how we're thinking about the future you have brands 
brands as the core and then both the tech infrastructure, but also the physical infrastructure that powers these brands. Got it. So, you know, I think a good place to start this conversation would be on on the investment decision-making framework at VMG. We have a lot of founders on this call who raised their seed and Series A funding. So if you could walk us through, you know, at a very high level on the investment evaluation framework, the the key aspects that you evaluate and and perhaps some high priority metrics you look at as well. We try not to overcomplicate it. You know, at, at the root of it, we're trying to evaluate if there's if there's real consumer demand for the product. And there's a lot of noise that comes to that process. A lot of times, you know, I think both investors and entrepreneurs are just seeking growth for growth's sake, meaning it's all just about revenue growth at any cost and all revenue being created equal. And we really don't look at it that way. We mm-hmm. re- whether it's whether the business is you know, direct-to-consumer oriented or some blend of omni-channel through brick-and-mortar retail, we want to look, we're really focused on repeat purchase and relative performance to its respective category. So it's all about velocities and repeat. You know, so certainly when we look at a business and someone shares their financials that are generally, you know, their own shipment data, that's all Mm -hmm. fine and good that it's growing. But we really want to unpack the direct-to-consumer and omni-channel metrics to really mm-hmm. understand the economics of each transaction, mm-hmm. as well as the velocities and repeat repeat of purchase. So that's kind of one bucket. So if right. we don't have that first bucket, then we're generally not interested. That's the that's the first important part of it is understanding the economics, velocities, and repeat. If those are exciting to us, then we want to further dig into the economics and supply chain. So understanding gross margin contribution margin and what the supply chain looks like in terms of either their own vertical integration of manufacturing or what the contract manufacturing landscape looks like for that particular product. If that is scalable and you know scalable from that dynamic, then it's interesting. And also on the first point, we want to look at the TAM. So are they, you know, what what are the relative velocities, economics, and repeat look like? And what is the overall market landscape? Because with a lot of new age categories, defining mm-hmm. TAM is an, is an art, not a science. And yep. what is the real TAM? Because a lot of times we'll get investment pitch books that define TAM in some massive way. And mm-hmm. that's really not necessarily how that, it's not really the market that that company may be playing in. Mm-hmm. And so it's really defining what does the TAM look like to be able to build a scale business under our investment period, but also right. leave enough remaining TAM for the next owner of the business where they're excited about it too. So again, you have TAM, you have velocities, repeat economics, you have gross margin supply chain, and then you have founder fit and alignment. So, you know, with founders and the team, do we have a do we have an aligned vision as to what we're building? Because it's it's hard enough to build an entrepreneurial brand and company, but if if you don't see eye to eye as to what the finish line looks like, it can be a real challenge. So this is definitely not in the order of importance. You know, at the right. end of the day, we're not going to partner with anybody unless we feel like there's aligned vision of what we're building, and as importantly, aligned vision in terms of what the values are. You know, in terms of who we mm-hmm. all are as people, who we are as human beings, and how do we make positive impact in the world. Got it. No, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, especially your 
comment on just not absolute velocity metrics, etc., but but you're always looking at velocity versus category benchmarks or or even competition. You know, one aspect that you didn't mention, but perhaps you know you look at it, it is covered, and what you mentioned is is on the brand itself. So you know how important is is the strength of the brand in your you know investment decision making process and. How do you also assess the the defensibility of a brand of a business that that you're evaluating? That's a great question. You know, a lot of times, you know, it's a combination of different metrics. Mm-hmm. You know, I personally find there's nothing stronger than still consumers voting with their wallets. So I still go right. back to the economics relative velocities to category mm-hmm. and repeat purchase. We'll often add on other more there's still quantitative metrics but not mm-hmm. but not financial so mm-hmm. you know net promoter score satisfaction mm-hmm. you know propensity to recommend social media metrics in terms of followers engagement things of that nature mm-hmm. you know so those are nice to have metrics that help support the core the core of you know the right economics velocity relative velocities and repeat right. because at the end of the day, and it's also time. Do they show strength in those metrics over over a period of time? There's a lot of brands that do really well for a short mm-hmm. period of time, call it you know 12, 24 months. But if they're able to keep up the strength of those metrics I described, it really mm-hmm. shows the strength of a brand. Got it. Yeah, the the endurance matters matters a bit. You know, matters a lot as well. Completely agree. And you know. We spoke about the defensibility, you know, of a brand and how you think about it. But, you know, when, again, just coming back to how you assess defensibilities from a business standpoint at the stage, you know, you're evaluating a company, etc. Have you observed any patterns in your successful investments in terms of, you know, specific capabilities that that help them build long-term defensibilities? There's nothing stronger than building a great brand and where they've proven that they they don't need to discount to, to sell the product. So right. a good metric is just understanding how strong are the velocities, <clears throat> the velocities and repeat at reg price. Mm-hmm. So consumers are not, you know, where they're not buying it based on value or price in, mm-hmm. in doing that over a period of time. That's that's really important. We haven't put much into patents or things of that nature because at the end of the day, for a lot of the type of categories we play in, people mm-hmm. can work around patents and they're very expensive to achieve. So we're much more focused on brand and trademark ownership than we mm-hmm. are about patents. Sometimes there is a supply chain advantage that's defensible. Mm-hmm. So if the product is unique enough where that vertical integration or unique third-party contract manufacturing regime creates defensibility, that's usually just a head start. If there's mm-hmm. enough of a TAM and market size, that mm-hmm. supply chain advantage usually normalizes over a period of time as other people build supply chain capabilities, but it mm-hmm. gives you that head start to invest and build that brand. So right. all roads, all roads lead back to building a strong brand in terms of defensibility right. in, in the type of categories and products that we invest in. Got it. And you know, switching to business fundamentals, you did touch upon a few metrics like you know, the store velocity, et cetera. But what are the top, and you also mentioned about gross margin, what would be your, you know, go-to top two, three metrics that, that you use to assess business health? I mean, gross margin is obviously one of them. 
You know, I right. think we've been universally, we've universally struggled when we've had gross margins under 30%. Mm-hmm. So 30% fully loaded gross margins, you know, if it's above 30%, it doesn't mean it's great. But if it's below 30%, it's almost assuredly bad. And we found that to be, you know, something we've learned, we've learned over time. Mm-hmm. There's no magic to velocity, you know, units per store per week, dollars per store per week. That's that's a really important metric, but it's mm-hmm. important in a relative sense. Comparing a beverage to a snack item on velocity is not a meaningful data point. So it's important in diligence and also as an entrepreneur to obtain the data to get a feel for what are your relative velocities compared to your peer set. And then that's the same on direct-to-consumer, comparing, you know, LTV to CAC and your ROAS, profitability on first purchase, all those metrics are are hard to compare cross-category. It's really around category to category, but more and more profitability on first purchase is really important. Justifying spend on LTV is really a difficult proposition. We've never been a real believer in justification CAC based on LTV. We really want to understand what the first purchase economics look like. Okay. Irrespective of how frequent the the purchases are, your preference is to to ensure that the business makes money on the first transaction itself. Not that, you know, if it doesn't make money, we want to understand how far from it. We didn't, right. you know, so it's again, it's art, not science. We don't, yeah. we're not ones to believe in a long-term LTV justification of the spend, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. we don't want to see two-year payback or something like that, you know, like, and gross, you know, the gross margin and gross margin as it relates to LTV and CAC are obviously really important metrics too, you know? Yeah. Where we struggle, sometimes the highest repeat purchase categories sometimes have the lowest gross margins. Yeah. Therefore, the near-term payback is really poor. And then the only thing you can hang your hat on is LTV because mm-hmm. the gross margins are low. So it's hard to drive anywhere near profitability on first purchase. So you have to justify a frequent repeat purchase over a period of time. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of times the companies don't have enough operating history to really validate what LTV really looks like because they maybe have their mm-hmm. oldest cohort, maybe, you know, still a year old or two years mm-hmm. max. And that's really hard to, you know, if there's a one to two year payback on LTV and the total operating history of the company is one to two years, you right. know, and the gross margins are low, but, for, right. but theoretical repeat purchase is high. It's hard to make all that. It's too much storytelling for us, you know? Got it. So for, for such businesses that don't have a long enough history, what are sort of the, you know, ideal targets that, that you think founders should have in terms of payback period or LTV to catch? It depends on a category. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's not an exact science. Right. You know, my biggest point of feedback is I think it's really tough for obvious reasons I believe entrepreneurs should have more control of their own destiny. If they're creating a business that relies on a lot of theoretical long-term payback metrics, they're going to be at the mercy of the capital raising market. And for obvious math, the sooner that they can build real profitability, the sooner they, they have more control over their destiny where they don't have to just stay on the fundraising hamster wheel and, and be able to have control of if and when they want to raise strategic capital versus have to raise capital because they built 
they built a business model that has a, a real finite life lifespan to it unless they raise more capital. Got it. No, completely aligned and resonate with that very deeply. That's a good segue into you know the next section of the conversation where I'd like to spend some time on your views on you know how consumer brands can achieve profitability, etc. I think the first one is I've heard you you know talk about this in in some of your interviews where you talk about the correlation that you've seen between profitability of businesses and the size of outcomes that that you've seen at VMG. So could you you know shed some light on that and on, on what what you mean by that? Absolutely. It's interesting. You know, I think I think too many investors and entrepreneurs start companies based on press releases. And and what I mean by that is, and I think it makes sense because they don't have any other purview. So they see a company like Justin's acquired by Formel. The only metrics they can find are some type of reported revenue number and an acquisition value. And then they, you know, people extrapolate a revenue multiple and assume that, well, that company must have been purchased on a revenue multiple. You know, I think capital raising in the early stages has some form of revenue multiple because oftentimes the companies are not profitable. So you have to value it on something. But when it comes to actual acquisition by a strategic acquirer, which has been our primary focus over the history of BMG is building brands for strategic acquisition, sometimes IPO, but our primary underwriting methodology is towards a strategic acquirer, one of the global CPG, global CPGs. Mm-hmm. I generally find that the revenue multiple is really just a function of math. And the real driver is some type of projected discounted cash flow and EBITDA multiple. And so in order to maximize value, you know, it's really the triangulation of growth and profitability. So even if you look at the U.S. public markets today in terms of the the consumer growth IPOs, the best Mm -hmm. performing IPOs are more like the 10 and 10. So they have at least 10% growth and at least 10% EBITDA margin. And it's not the ones with 50% growth losing, you know, losing money or break even. And I find it to be the same way in terms of maximizing value for strategic acquisition is, you know, think about it like 15 and 15 at a mature state, growing more than 15% on the top line and in a 15% EBITDA margin. And usually that strong 15% EBITDA margin translates to strong gross margins. Strong growth margins are different things or different categories, but usually it's somewhere over 40%. And in some categories, over 50%. You know, gross right. margins. And when right. you when you're able to achieve that 15 and 15, and sometimes hopefully that's like 30% growth plus and 15% EBITDA margins, you know, then you get that 20, you know, sometimes you can get 20 times plus as an EBITDA multiple on mm-hmm. that, you know, from a strategic acquirer. And it leads to a large revenue multiple, you know, based on the math. But then a lot of times it's still reported on the press release as a revenue, you know. Here's the acquisition multiple. And then it's some dated sales number, you know, of the last full year reported period. And people extrapolate a revenue multiple from that. So the upshot, Mm -hmm. again, is nail both top and bottom line in an effort to maximize value. And you control your own destiny again to, to not get stuck on the capital raising hamster wheel. And we find that entrepreneurs and management teams that are capital efficient along the way are generally the best management teams. They know their business better than than businesses that were just focused on growing top line for top line sake and are stuck on the capital raising hamster wheel. They generally don't know their businesses as well. Right. No, that's 
that's really well said and and it's you know it's quite enlightening that that you're saying that most of the cpg strategics also look at or rather the primary multiple that they apply when valuing businesses is ebitda multiple as opposed to just revenue multiple it it was something that i wanted to ask you as well given your you know track record of multiple exits so you mentioned clearly revenue growth is a major driver and the ebitda margins are a major driver in terms of just value creation are there any other aspects that strategics really you know pay top dollars or pay a premium for with respect to a brand or a business Well, scale is important. So the scale point for strategic acquisition has moved up. I find that you know the the market kind of ebbs and flows, but yeah. you know you see very little strategic interest for brands with less than seventy five million of U.S. dollar revenue. Like mm-hmm. there needs to be a real scale point. Mm-hmm. The other dynamic is it's not that you should sacrifice growth for profit. Growth is almost like table stakes. Right. So you need growth in order for interest from strategics. Right. But growth's not good enough. You need that growth combined with strong profitability. But you can't just have strong profitability and no growth. Like that doesn't work either. Yeah. Like right. growth is a checkbox in order to have any interest. Mm-hmm. Then to get it across the finish line, you need to have strong profitability metrics too. Mm-hmm. And then that growth needs to be unpacked with that growth needs to go back to the same metrics we talked about before, which are related to strong velocities relative to category, strong repeat strong brand metrics you got to have it all to be acquired by a strategic and that's you know i think that's where you know i see so many investment decks of like hey we're going to get acquired by a strategic you know mm-hmm. there's really there's really only so many brands that have been acquired by strategics you know relative right. to how many brands are started how many brands investors invest in you have to essentially create a perfect business you have to yeah. nail growth profitability, regulatory compliance, legal, supply chain, trademarks, team, large tam, like got to nail it all. And that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. where we're focused with our our brands that we invest in is, hey, mm-hmm. revenue growth is great, but we got to nail it all. And and we work together on working backwards from the experience we've had over the years, starting mm-hmm. day 1, actually starting before we even close on our investment because again alignment's really important. We align yeah. on what what are we building mm-hmm. and then we hit the ground running on built on really working through the front and back end metrics of trying to build a business that gives us the highest probability of strategic interest and building the best team we can in the industry to be able to hit those strategic goals and that and and the and the vis, the various front end and back end dynamics that can give us the highest probability to have that strategic buyer interest downstream got it got it no that's very very useful and you know we at dsg are big believers in in controlling your destiny and you know not being dependent on fundraisers to to keep surviving so you know on that wanted to ask you something we always tell our founders that the simplest way to make money is by not losing money it's sort of the inversion principle that charlie munger talks about a lot so you know just by avoiding ways to lose money you know you can ensure that you you are able to make money so would would like to understand in your experience what are the common reasons why consumer brands struggle to achieve profitability great question poor gross margins you know the number one dynamics well we're just starting out we're going to have great gross margins when we have scale i found that 9 out of 10 times i'm you know again this is not an exact science this is my own personal estimation 
Nine out of 10 times, that company will not achieve the gross margins they think they will through scale. You know, the brands that have strong gross margins from the beginning stay having strong gross margins. And the ones that start business models with poor gross margins are stuck with them. Now, there are one to two out of 10 cases where that scale benefit truly occurs. But Mm -hmm. I find most of the time it does not. And it leads to chronic cash burn issues. So that's Mm -hmm. one. Two, it's the concept that almost over-marketing. So not Mm -hmm. really creating, not really giving the brand a chance to see if there's organic demand for it. So spending irrational amounts on marketing versus really, really tactical and strategic marketing drives consumption. So trying to be all things to all people. So for example, not focused on looking at ROAS and CAC to LTV and profitability on first purchase, really refining how that direct-to-consumer marketing would work or focus on out-of-home buying billboards and all sorts of things you know, Mm -hmm. to try to drive launch. A lot of times the best brands don't have to do all that. And it creates a culture of spend when you launch that way. It's hard to get out of that routine of overspend on marketing. Mm -hmm. Then the other piece is built the misconception that a great team means a lot of people. A great team means hiring really talented player coaches. You need a small handful of people who really want to roll up their sleeves, who are strategic and tactical to build a great business. There's, you know, companies that overbuild total headcount too early, mm-hmm. you know, leads to chronic cash burn because building a lot of team means they generally end up spending on other things. So it's not mm-hmm. just the cost of the people, but it's the cost of the various initiatives where that focus, a focused player coach team with a focused marketing strategy combined with the right gross margins generally mm-hmm. lead to capital efficiency. And it's either going to work or it's not. If a company had to hire a ton of people, spend a ton on marketing, have to scale into strong gross margins later, it probably was never meant to be in the first place. Got it. So it's gross margins, marketing strategy, and uh, you know, and ensuring that you don't go crazy hiring a really large team. Five or That's right. right. You need a yeah. great team, but sometimes mm-hmm. people equate great team with quantity of team. And that's, sure. that, that's, that's a very different thing. Right. Got it. You know, a related question is, you know, on, on this whole growth versus profitability paradox. And, uh, you know, our founders always tell us that investors like, you know, like BMG or, or DSG for that matter seem to be rare in the ecosystem who speak about profitability, et cetera. And they just, feel pressurized to show a certain growth to ensure that you know they are they're seen as building exciting businesses so it's a conversation that you know that that we have with most of our founders what would your guidance be in terms of how founders should should think about the right pace at which they grow and uh, you know and also the scale at which they ought to become profitable i understand it it's in the us context but you know just the principles that you think they should use to you know just pace the growth appropriately and get to profitability that'll be useful for for everyone to understand and it's a good caveat know that all of my commentary is related to yeah. kind of a us and canadian perspective right. this is i am i am not you know i am far from an expert on yeah. on uh, on the asian you know the asian markets as it relates right. to that point right from a prof- it really depends on the category mm-hmm. you know I, mm-hmm. there's not a 
there's not an absolute to it. I've found historically that, you know, there's been real correlation. You know, when we've been able to invest in brands that have strong growth and they're already profitable by 15 million of US dollar revenue. So there's Mm -hmm. strong growth and they're profitable at that point. That's usually a very good signal, you know, in terms of the business model that they've created, because usually that implies the gross margins are pretty strong. It also it also implies that the team that they're driving strong growth at that level, you know, that there's you know, it's a real path. Yeah. So that'd probably be my rough rule of thumb is is around 15 million ish of revenue. We've seen strong correlation when when you're seeing profitability or strong profitability from there at that point that um, that's correlated with. And, and then you're seeing strong growth at that. There's right. there's something, that, you know, strong growth and strong velocity metrics. There's right. usually some good signaling. Got it. And, you know, for the benefit of the audience and in our experience, this is again in the Indian context in terms of pacing yourself, our view is, you know, if you can drive to 100 crores, which is roughly 15 million, interestingly, the number you mentioned, in five to six years from from incorporating the company, our belief is that's a great pace, you know, from our portfolio and outside. So getting to that $15 million mark in five to six years is, is a good pace to grow at. And in terms of profitability, our view is similar. Ideally, you should be profitable in the $15 million mark, which is 100 crores in INR terms. But, you know, if not by 200 crores. So, you know, those are sort of internal benchmarks that we use at DSG. But that's very helpful. Way. It's a rule of thumb. Absolutely. It's not to say we don't invest in brand. You know, it's, it is, everything I'm talking about, it's art, not science. And that's, you yeah. know, I, I think for us, it's the learnings of over the last 15 years helps right. us kind of calibrate we, I don't believe in absolutes of like, well, it's got to meet this metric or that metric, or we're not going to invest in it. It's all subjective and objective. And it's a combination of all those dynamics that lead to us making a, a decision on whether we partner or not. No, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You know, I think a related dimension, you know, when it comes to this growth versus profitability discussion is, is around capital efficiency. You did, you know, reference that multiple times in the conversation. And I know it's your pet peeve as well, the tendency on the part of investors and founders to overcapitalize brands in pursuit of unrealistic growth sometimes. What would your advice be on how founders should think about the quantum of capital that they raise in a growth stage round? Oh, gosh. I mean, it depends on the company. You know, I'll start with the why. I love, I admire entrepreneurship. And what I struggle the most is seeing when a very successful business gets to the finish line and the founders own very little of it. And and so much of that is defined on how much they're going to own of their business, mm-hmm. you know, in those first few years of starting yep. that brand or company. And so that's why I really like to stress all these various metrics, because sometimes the decisions that are made in those first handful of years in terms of the business model created and the mm-hmm. capital raised, even at high values, is massively dilutive to that founder or founding team. So as a result, I like to focus on thinking about how to how to create capital efficiency where it gets profitable sooner rather than later so that mm-hmm. so that they don't need to raise as much capital. How much it is, it really depends on on the yeah, gross margins. Of the, of it, it's circular it's circular, right? Depends on the gross margins of the business. It mm-hmm. depends on the approach and what the contribution margins look like. You know, right. the on some of the D2C driven businesses mm-hmm. where 
you know, where gross margin is seemingly high, but they're spending, you know, 20, 30 percent in marketing to get to that contribution margin, even though gross margin is seemingly high, they still need to fund that growth engine. Sometimes you have primarily brick and mortar businesses in the U.S. that are have a small D2C, but they've really built themselves through Amazon and brick and mortar. They may be, and, they, and if they if they pair that with strong gross margins, mm-hmm. they may raise little or no money to get to 15 plus million of revenue and they own all of their businesses. And I love that. You know, there's nothing that brings me more joy than seeing a a business, you know, 15, 20, 30 million of US revenue and they haven't raised a dime. You know, I really admire. And to say that that's not possible, I see it all the time, actually. You know, it is quite possible. It's just a path of how they've chosen to structure their business and the dynamics within that that respective category. Some categories, it's not possible based on the gross margins of that category, but there are many that that you can. And, and, you know, it's certainly possible. It's not common, but it's Mm -hmm. possible. Got it. But that's a real signal to us. You know, when we see a business that's grown, you know, to 15, 30 million dollars and it's profitable and they're out there raising capital. And I Mm -hmm. love it when they have the benefit of choice. They go, you know, we may or may not take capital, you know, but we really want a great partner. That's to us like the dream scenario, because a lot of times those type of entrepreneurs, you know, they want BMG. They want BMG not because they need capital. They want BMG because they want a great partner. We want someone who wants a great partner. A lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs will say that every time. But at the end of the day, they they need something because of their business model. They just need capital. And they may have been diluted significantly. So they're looking at valuation as a primary metric because I can respect that because they're just trying to manage their dilution because they've raised a lot of capital. What I love is when they, when entrepreneurs say, I don't even need capital. I just want to find the best partner. And those are those are great scenarios where where we where we get really fired up to get get involved to help support that journey. Got it. Got it. That's super useful. And you know, just talking about quantum of capital, you know, that founders should raise of late, a lot of our portfolio comprises digital first brands. And you know, the biggest use of funding is always in marketing, which is, you know, towards Facebook and and Google. And you know, we've as we speak, there are a lot of brands in the portfolio that are figuring out how to keep the customer acquisition cost in check as they scale. And the recent iOS update didn't help. So, you know, would would like to understand the best practices that you've seen in brands that have kept the customer acquisition cost in check as they scale and, and probably optimize over time. So it would, would be great to understand uh, from you on that. You know, I wish there was a perfect answer to that. You know, I think we're still coming off an era where there were a lot of brands built on Facebook Mm -hmm. and and that's that's been largely a macro challenge for most D2C brands now of trying to find other other customer acquisition channels that are as efficient. Mm -hmm. So the upshot is, you know, the brands that have continued to have really efficient customer acquisition are those that aren't just Facebook ad driven. So they may have other content that they create, you know, mm-hmm. where there's a compelling reason for a consumer to interact with their brand. They mm-hmm. they have a unique influencer strategy where they it's a it's some influencer affiliate program where, you know, there's other means of driving brand awareness and trial through through various influencers. 
People have interesting, compelling TikTok campaigns, hard to measure, but you know, but they, but you're seeing some brands do really well with some compelling TikTok campaign, Mm -hmm. other video content. So it's really around, you know, the, the sort of low hanging fruit of targeted Facebook ads has largely, you know, largely come to an end and Mm -hmm. direct to consumer brands have to be a lot more creative about about developing compelling content strategies to drive efficient customer acquisition. And you're finding that more direct-to-consumer brands have to go omni-channel earlier or at all. You know, A lot of direct-to-consumer brands that never considered going into brick and mortar are having to do so now and to really diversify their, their acquisition channels, but also continue to grow their businesses efficiently. But we're, we're continuing to see really creative folks. It's just it's really interesting to to see innovation in this area because we had a whole era. It was really a targeted Facebook ad driven marketplace. And now you're right. seeing a lot more diversification in, in how people go at it. Some people have cracked the code on it. And I think it, it's a real testament to the strength of their brand and creativity. And there's mm-hmm. some that haven't cracked the code and they're, they're having to figure it out. Right. Got it. No, you know, moreover, as you said, one of the reasons you mentioned brands find it challenging to become profitable is, uh, you know, not sort of overspending in in marketing. And, uh, you know, and as you said, if people have cracked the unit economics and have paid attention to keeping the acquisition costs in check from day one, that that itself should should set them well for, for the future. The other part I wanted to ask you on was about entering the offline channel. But, but I heard you say that brands are diversifying into the offline channel early on. To, to keep the acquisition costs in check. And not necessarily early on, it's just at a point in time because mm-hmm. there's real benefit to leveraging that online digital marketing spend. It helps right. drive velocities in, in brick and mortar too. So it's sometimes a shame that that, that investment spend on online and digital isn't leveraged in driving brick and mortar. So I think it's in you in the US, you have brick and mortar retailers who are interested in building digital first, bringing in digital first brands into their stores. So it's a nice, it's a nice complementary marketplace in the US where you have interest from the retailers in bringing in digital first brands and you have digital first brands that are more interested in omni-channel. But it, you know, it's really, it just kind of depends on, on the category and stage and, and all of that on what's right for one company is not necessarily right for the other. Got it. I see a you know few questions come up, but you know let me try and wrap up you know my questions before that. The last section I'd like to focus on founders. You know, as you said, you said you didn't mention the investment criteria in any order, but I think that founders are your biggest criteria. What what are the important traits that that you look for in founders? while investing and uh, could you also talk through common traits that that you've seen in your most successful founders first one is self-awareness so great entrepreneurs in my opinion you know there's two things it's almost like sometimes self-awareness kind of goes both ways in some regards you have to have an extraordinary self-belief because it's hard to be an entrepreneur and you and entrepreneurs are have this vision to be able to see opportunity where oftentimes others don't. And to to have that vision, you have to have innate Mm self-belief. But also, great founders have the ability to evolve and see that that innate self-belief in creating that opportunity 
have to have enough self-awareness to build strength around them of where of understanding their own strengths and areas of opportunities and building a great team around them to be able to help be experts in the areas where it's not that founder's strengths. And then you combine that with being a good human being and a tremendous work ethic. And mm-hmm. if you have all of that dynamic of, you know, that that leads to generally a lot of great outcomes, you know, because you know, that ability to evolve and bring great people around him or her, you know, when you combine that with great work ethic and and a strong value system of being a good human being, you know, a lot of great things can happen. Got it. And, you know, in terms of common traps that, that you see founders fall into, common mistakes that, that founders make, areas where you find yourself repeatedly cautioning founders on, could you talk a bit on that as well? In, in, from, in terms of business model or... Yeah, it could be in terms of business models, important strategic decisions. You know, again, more just learning from past mistakes made and, uh, you know, and trying to understand if there are like common mistakes. I think, I think the um, unrealistic optimism and not having sufficient paranoia. So I think it's that it's the optimism that creates visionary opportunities, which makes entrepreneurs great. Mm-hmm. I think having a sufficient level of paranoia. So a couple things. One, always assuming that the next day is going to be better than the last one. So, mm-hmm. you know, de- at some point, de-risking the, the journey for themselves after you build at a certain point, consider take some chips off the table so that they don't keep all of their equity only in the business. And and don't take care of their families. I think that, I think there's that's an important point of don't always assume the next day is always going to be better than the last one. All redundancy. So if I if I had a nickel for every time a single source supply business goes, oh, I have a great contract manufacturer, but mm-hmm. it's their only source of supply. So really, supply is the bedrock of branded product businesses. So mm-hmm. having redundancy and supply for the rainy day. Mm-hmm. And know that that unlikely things happen, and to make sure that you you always have product to sell to consumers. So redu- like seen so many times, founders burned by single source single source supply. And then third again is just around self awareness. You know, not evolving the business team and how it's run based on different scaling points. Running a hundred million dollar business the same way it was run with the same team, same methodologies as when it was 10, as an example. Like businesses mm-hmm. require evolution. I think lastly is not not understanding everything as an ecosystem. So not treating people properly. Sometimes I'll hear we're different. We're a new age brand. We don't need to adhere to any of the retailer rules or or how how business is done with retailers. We're reinventing everything and we don't need to treat suppliers and retailers with the same level of respect that other companies in the past have. We can do it our way and they just need us. I think that sometimes that hubris and arrogance works for a while until it doesn't. And then that lack of partnership and relationship with investors, suppliers, vendors, retailers comes back to haunt that company because mm-hmm. it didn't act in the spirit of partnership. So it comes back to being a great human being, thinking about a successful entrepreneurial journey as a series of great partnerships and relationships 
and always looking at the eye of creating win-win situations for everybody throughout that journey, as opposed to a scorched earth, zero-sum game. No, those are wonderful observations. I, I love the fourth one, especially, and, and the first one as well, which is very important. We have, let me just wrap up with one final question and then, you know, we can take the, the questions from the audience. I hope we are in the new normal and there aren't any more waves. So would like to understand if you've seen any perceptible lasting changes in consumer behavior when compared to pre-pandemic days. I think we're still evolving. So it's interesting, you know, I think I think there was a perception during the core lockdown periods of the pandemic that consumers, I think there was some extreme, extreme cases where people would believe, oh, well, e-com everything is going to be the future. And mm-hmm. I think it's continued to prove as the as the, at least the US has opened up is that it's truly an omni-channel environment. There was definitely certainly acceleration in e-commerce engagement during the core parts of the pandemic. But consumers want to buy, they want to buy their products everywhere they are. And sometimes that's through their phones and e-com. And sometimes they still want to walk into a store. But having said that, all stores aren't created equal. So stores need to create a great, a great consumer experience. And so we believe in an omni-channel world. And I think it's continued to prove it's an omni-channel world, but it's very competitive. So consumers, investors, entrepreneurs need to continue to deliver the best experience they can to to brand to consumers both online and offline and you know i think in some ways so, in some ways things didn't change you know it just yeah. made it more it just things just got more competitive all right great so let's jump to the q and a I'm, I'm taking the first one first. So this is from uh, Vikram. The question is, how do you define fully loaded gross margin? When when you said that thirty percent, I would just loaded. look at I would just look at US Gap. You can look at it online. You know, it's gross sales minus various trade spend, promotional spend that people use, and returns in um, you know in the brick and mortar and online channels. You have net sales, and you minus uh, subtract out the product costs, freight. You know, freight in. Some people put freight out and warehousing in there. Sometimes you don't, depending whether you're vertically integrated or not. And then mm-hmm. you have uh, you have gross margin. I think given how expensive freight is, it's very important for... I'm very keen on looking into what's the margin after all freight and warehousing, because a lot of that, that can be a very meaningful part of the P&L you know, mm-hmm. in today's day and age. So someone just quoting their product margin to me is not all that relevant. I want to know what the margin is after all freight and warehousing. Got it. And trade spend. Great. I think the next one question is not very clear, so I'm skipping that. Ankita's question is on what are the key principles of inorganic growth? How do you value businesses you want to acquire? And what risk exposure should be taken into consideration? I think her question is more on principles to use when when a founder is thinking about you know inorganic roll-up in terms of valuations, etc. I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah. As I read it, even I'm not too sure. So let, let me jump to the next one. No problem. And I'm not saying it's a bad question. I'm just saying no, I, I, I know. I'm even just I don't cannot, understand it. I'm not very sure either. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to the next question, which is what are some case studies in the US that Series A brands can look at to learn how to go omni-channel? I think Quest was one. I was trying to name somebody a brand that's not ours because I, I 
Another no, pet peeve are, you have a my, lot my of pet peeve also is our investors that just promote their own brands all the time. And I, I, it's a pet peeve of mine that I don't like. Yeah. So, but just, in, I need to answer quickly. So, yeah. you know, Quest was a brand that started online. They built, they were actually the first, they were one of the first brands to have a Facebook influencer strategy. There wasn't even a name for it yet then. It just happened to be consumers who organically posted before and after pictures of utilizing Quest and as a primary portion of what they ate. And mm-hmm. they leveraged that consumer passion into, you know, launching in specialty. So like GNC and vitamin shop in the US. Mm-hmm. And then that success parlayed into a massive launch with Walmart. You know, where we did I think another point of advice here where we made mis- where mistakes were made, there's the pricing wasn't done right. You have to build a pricing model out in advance of looking at what your pricing is direct to consumer, through distributors, through various different specialty mass and grocery channels. Everybody has an expectation of where what their pricing should be in that channel relative to other channels. And if you don't get that pricing right from the get-go, that can be a massive omni-channel issue. So really think through as you start a company early, build out that whole pricing model on wholesale and what the shelf price will be and what mm-hmm. you discount it at or don't discount it at across various channels to make sure all of your economics work. Do that mm-hmm. up front because it's really hard to fix later if you haven't done it correctly. Got it. I have a quick request. Do you mind if we go on for another five minutes? I just see a few more questions. Is that all right with you? Yes. Another five would work. Thank you so much for that. The next question is from Siddhant. It says, Brick and mortar stores take time uh, to establish and generate ROI. Are investors willing to be patient at the cost of growth? Is Capex to build brick and mortar stores okay for consumer brands? So I think his question is on whether investors are patient for brands to build out stores and generate ROI and whether, you know, as a fund, you're okay with brands funding the Capex for these stores. So. A lot of the brands we focus on, they sell through third-party brick and mortar. So, you know, you know, in beauty, there are certainly cases where you're building out your own your own brick and mortar stores. Mm-hmm. And but that's you know, that's that's fewer and far between. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the categories we play in, the branded CPG brands are selling through a third party, you know, whether it's a specialty channel, you know, whether that's a Sephora and Beauty or a Whole Foods market in food, and then they're going through other. So, but as it relates to four wall economics, you know, I think the four wall economics need to work relatively quickly. If you're building out a store to sell your own products, like it's just like online, the you know you can't bank on a long LTV chain. It's the same concept. You know, it needs to it needs to economically work relatively quickly, or there's there's real there should be real question of like why did you build that store. And not right. go through a third-party retailer or stay online digital. Got it. I think the next question we covered is on you know what are brands doing differently beyond Facebook ads, and how can one differentiate or is just spending on marketing the only way forward? I think we touched upon it, you know, at the end of our conversation. The next one is on this is interesting. Your favorite B two C brand, who you feel did everything right? <laughs> My favorite. My favorite D2C brand. Gosh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. 
maybe you could you could say more than one. <laughs> I gosh, I got I gotta name one of my own again. I don't, you know, I think Daily Harvest is a really interesting brand and business where if you asked me 10 years ago if someone could build a multi-hundred million dollar direct-to-consumer brand with a frozen, a frozen supply chain, I would have never thought it would be possible. So to see what Rachel, the founder there, has built in a frozen, a healthy plant-based frozen foods platform, all direct to consumer, has been truly remarkable. And that you know, it comes with the fact that they have tremendously market-leading retention. So we talked about that earlier about how important retention is. Yeah. They, they really surprise and delight consumers where once they try daily harvest and they stay, and that mm-hmm. you're able to build a a business of that scale with a frozen supply chain is truly remarkable. So I really admire what Daily Harvest has built as a result. Got it. Okay. I named our own brand again, which is my own pet peeve. Yeah. We have more questions, but I'm just going to ask one final question and we wrap up. It's from Alan, which is, what are the three most important things a startup must do to ensure good customer experience? Responsiveness. It's amazing how many brands fail because they don't they don't solicit and take consumer feedback well. So create a system where you're soliciting, you know, whether there's some type of incentive for a survey, make it very easy for consumers to share their feedback with you mm-hmm. and then take action. Take care, spend the dollars to solve that problem for them. And then fix that problem for everybody else so it doesn't happen again. So that's one. Make purchasing very easy. Having to, to go from one landing page to another landing page to another, whether to fill in a bunch of fields, you know, nobody wants to do that. So make purchasing easy, make consumer feedback easy, solve their problems quickly. And I think you're gonna it's gonna lead to great, great results if your product is truly great. Got it. No, very, very insightful. And, you know, I know we've overshot and, uh, you know, to the audience, we have more questions. But since your apologies, we've run out of time. But Wayne, thank you again for joining us. This was a wonderful session and there are a lot of takeaways for for us and for the founders, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, really appreciate you taking out the time. And thank you, everyone, for, for joining. I know it's really late in Southeast Asia. Really appreciate everyone joining this. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. I'm going to go start my day now. (laughs) Have a good day. Bye. And see you all in the next episode of Break by Break. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Take care.